Guys, I'm excited to be here. I'm actually really nervous as well. Um, my wife was asking me this morning, how are you feeling? I said, I'm feeling good. I feel fine. I've, I've been a pastor for 10 years and I've preached countless sermons and Bible studies. And then I pulled up into the parking lot and I swear the sparks were flying off my skin. <laughs> and so bear with me. We'll get through this together, I promise. And uh, we'll hopefully, Lord willing, we'll hear a word from the Lord this morning. Jose, I'm sorry? Something. It's going to be something. Mosaic family, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13, this morning we'll be in verses 5 through 17. As you get there, you'll see the heading on the, on the chapter, and it'll be super familiar to most of you, if not all of you. John 13, 5 through 17. I say this almost every time I preach. This is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. And not that I didn't mean it before or with other portions, I really mean it with this one. This is one of my favorite portions. I've preached it, I've taught it, I've studied it over the years, and the Lord continues to show me some things that I didn't know before. For the sake of time, we'll read the text as sort of we go through the narrative, um, but let's pray together and we'll just, we'll just dive in two feet. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us. Father, we confess individually and collectively that we are in desperate need of your grace. Father, not just for salvation, but to live and to move and to breathe day by day, moment by moment. Father, in these next few moments, as we open your word, as we pull back the layers of what's here, Father, we pray that you would teach us, that your spirit would, would resonate in us. Father, that we might behold the beauty, the majesty, the, the glory of Christ. And that that would result in a deep abiding love for one another. Father, we pray all these things for our good, for the sake of our neighbors and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll start with, uh, with some group participation. I'm going to give you the, the, the company slogan, okay? I'm going to give you a, a, a catchphrase. They're familiar, don't worry. And I want you to shout out the company name, okay? Here we go. Just do it. Okay, good. One for one. Have it your way. Yeah, good. And this might be a throwback. I realize some of the youngins in the room might not get this one. There are some things money can't buy, but for else there's wow like four people <laughs> mastercard our text this morning guys it's a familiar one okay we know it we've read it we've studied it we've heard it preached we've heard it taught jesus washes the disciples feet and as I was studying and as I was praying and as I was wrestling and I went back and forth between I'm going to preach this passage, but I want to preach another one, but I'm going to come back to this one. I was thinking about how best to approach the text. And as I settled, I tried my hand at a few slogans to help us grasp the main idea of the narrative. Here we go. And I promise you up front, they get progressively worse. I've got three. Ready? Here's the first one. Rags, towels, feet, and toes. I should be embarrassed right now. Second one is grab a rag and scrub some crust. 
And guys, this is the worst one, but this one's my favorite. <laughs> I should stop here. <laughs> Ready? Here we go. Feet. You don't have to like them. <laughs> you just have to clean them. <laughs> I'll be honest, I had a newfound appreciation for slogan writers. Those little, like, catchy little pithy things that they're not easy to write. And I'll be honest with you, none of those really capture the heart of the passage. They might describe it. There may be some things we can, we can look at in those slogans and say, yeah, that, that, that sort of covers the, the surface level, the top level of it. And I'll be honest, I actually did come up with one, but I'll tell you a little later as we go through the sermon, because there is one, I think, one sort of pithy statement that captures this text. If you're taking notes and I had to give you a text idea, it would be this, that God's love, proven in the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, invites us to communion with him, relationship with him, and leads us to love others. I promise my slogan is pithier than that. But I think this narrative shows us, reveals for us, puts on display for us the beauty of God's love. Dare I even say the mystery of God's love? That love is proven in who Jesus is, what Christ has done, and it invites us to relationship with him, to communion with him, to fellowship with him, and leads us then to love others as he has loved us. By a show of hands, how many of you have heard a sermon on this text before? Most. Here's how it's primarily taught. Jesus washed feet, so should we. I, I don't like feet, <laughs> but I've heard it taught, Jesus washed feet, so should you. I've heard it taught, Jesus served others, so should you, so, so should we. Jesus loved others, so should we. Those, those things are true. They're true statements. In fact, the scriptures actually tell us those things. We know that. But rather than just tell you to serve or tell you to love, rather than just tell you to follow Jesus' example, what I want us to do in these next few moments is take the onion of God's word and I want us to pull back the layers to the core of what's there. To see the heart of who Jesus is, what motivated him and compelled him to love others, and then ultimately what compels us likewise to go and do the same. quick background of John chapter 13 as we prep to dive in. John chapter 13 is the beginning of a sort of a five chapter section, a block of chapters that's known as the farewell discourse. You might have even heard it as the upper room discourse. In these five chapters, Jesus is 24 hours or so. He's got 24 hours left to live. John chapters 13 through 17 take us through light speed and we come to the final day or so of Jesus' life and in those 24 hours, Jesus very clearly has no regard for his own physical well-being but he's focused on encouraging and reassuring the disciples. He's focused on offering hope to remind them that God is with them, that God has promises for them. Some difficult things in that but ultimately that 
though he's leaving, he's not abandoning them. As we dive into verses 1 through 4, very briefly, it says that now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That verse 1 is fascinating. Now, last week I had the privilege of, of preaching for a friend in, 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 at his church in Roanoke, and I actually preached the back half of John 13. And I likened verse 1 to a one-verse eulogy of Jesus' life and ministry. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John gives us a summary statement in one short phrase of Jesus' life and ministry, the core of who he is and what he did. Guys, this is why when we read, and we'll read it towards the end of the sermon, 1 John 4, that God is love. When we grapple with that and wrestle with that, we find that Jesus embodied that. It's the core of who he is. John says the feast of the Passover. This is a commemoration, an annual commemoration of the Exodus event, which if, if you're aware, it's the, the sort of the event of the Old Testament. God's people looked back and they celebrated, they reflected, they commemorated, and that drove them to have hope for the future. That God, who in the deepest, darkest pit that we could find ourselves in with seemingly no hope, he reached down deep and yanked us out, took us out of Egypt towards the promised land where we would have rest. Generations have gone by. Centuries have gone by. And God's people were still commemorating and celebrating and reflecting on this event. It was during this time that Jesus senses that his hour has come. It signals that his suffering and death at the hands, the, the betrayal of Judas, the hands of, uh, of those his enemies ultimately would take the very breath out of his lungs. Here's what John's statement is. The Passover lamb was being prepared. Jesus, the Passover lamb, the one who would fulfill God's intention for salvation was now being prepared and led away. But there was something special because we know that Christ doesn't just secure physical freedom. He secures spiritual freedom, doesn't he? That his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, they signify something greater. That in, in essence, the Old Testament event of the Exodus was a foretaste, a foreshadowing, dare I say, an appetizer to the full banquet that was found and fulfilled in Christ. I love what John does in especially these chapters here. As I've read scripture over the years, and especially here in the last two to three years especially, I think I've come to appreciate scripture a different way than I used to. When I was in seminary and when I was first starting out in pastoral ministry, it was just black and red words on a white page, and you just you look at the text, you preach the text, you move on, and that's it. I'm not denying those things are important, but I think here recently, in, in recent years, the Lord has sort of helped me 
to understand what I call the contour of Scripture. That this book is not just black and red words on a white page and lays flat, but there's, there's contour, there's tones, and there's emotion. These were real people who lived real lives, who breathed real air, who experienced real things. And what we have in John 13 is a whole lot of emotion. It's the contour, the ups and downs, the rises and falls. As we read scripture, we see that in a sense, if we're looking at it from a, from a, from a perspective, we could see the sort of scriptures come to life. You remember those pop-up books as a kid? You'd open it up and the page would literally pop up. There's so much here to grapple with. Just in John 13, you have Jesus and Judas going toe-to-toe. You have God and Satan going eye-to-eye. You have this tense sort of double narrative where Judas runs out into the night at one point and Jesus is left in the upper room with his disciples and we know what Judas is doing and we know what Jesus is doing and they're running side by side, neck and neck, until we reach a finish line, this crescendo where all of a sudden now Christ crucified for our sins. Scriptures, they, they come alive for us. I'm a movie buff. I love movies. I might have the largest DVD collection outside of like a, again, old heads blockbuster, right? Something I love about movies is not just the scene itself, but the music that sort of plays in the background of a scene, right? I, I like the drama, suspense. And then when there's this sort of tense moment, you hear this, this music come in and you're like, oh, something's going to happen, right? This is the contour that I'm talking about. The, the, we, we understand contour in different contexts here with the scriptures. When we look at the contour, the tone, the setting, the emotion, the, the, the weight of what's here, we can feel what the scriptures want us to feel to know what the scriptures are there to show us. This was a weighty moment in the life of Jesus and the disciples. Let's dive in verse five. Then he poured out, he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Listen, just going to say it like this. Jesus does some wild things in this narrative. Jesus does some wild, unexpected, dare I say even shocking things, things that were not necessarily scripted or planned and the disciples definitely wouldn't have expected him to do. He shocks the disciples by filling this basin, this small bowl with water. He takes a towel from around his waist and there he stoops Oh, and I'm just going to be descriptive here. He washes the crusty, gnarly men feet that were in the room. This is what were there. These were men who wore sandals and there was dust and grime and dirt and gunk all over the streets. And as they were coming into a place to have a meal, a, a meal with friends, there generally would have been someone there to clean them up. It's sort of the inverse of, hey, wash your hands before you eat. That's a lesson for my son, whom I I love. But by the time they secure this upper room and they bring the, the resources in to have the meal, by the time the disciples and Jesus gather in that space, there was no one to wash their feet, no one to clean them up. And Jesus does the, the thing that, well, no one expected someone of Jesus' stature to do. 
He stoops low. As low as he could possibly get. It's, it's thought. Most scholars agree that foot washing was reserved for Gentile servants. That it was something that not even the disciples themselves would have considered doing, not even for themselves or for each other. And in, in a very real sense, Jesus' actions are they're culturally unthinkable, that it's even offensive to them, as we're going to see here in a second. And the disciples, they're shocked, maybe even disgusted by what Jesus is doing. Verse 6, so he comes to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, this is Simon Peter to Jesus, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter says to him, never shall you wash my feet. Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answers him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I love Peter. (laughs) Verse 10, Jesus said to him, listen, man, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. All right, so let's make some sense of these four or five verses here, okay? Simon Peter, who, I'll be honest, I look in the mirror and I see Simon Peter at times. It's super relatable to me. He's an open mouth, insert foot kind of guy sometimes. I've been there. I love what Peter does here because there's enough safety and confidence in his walk with the Lord, the one who had taught him for years, to look at him and say, are you crazy? There's no way. I would, it's almost as if, this is the unspoken part, it's almost as if Peter says, I wouldn't do this for anybody else. You can't do it for me. Jesus, I love, love the patience of Christ here. The gentleness, even the tenderness of Jesus in his interaction. Because Jesus could have lashed out, right? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm the teacher, you're the student, you need to follow my instructions. But what Jesus does is, it's almost as if he, he looks Peter in the eye and says, you don't understand what I'm doing for you. It's going to make sense soon not yet. Let me do this. Because if you don't let me do this, you have no communion with me. There's no fellowship with me. What Jesus is ultimately pointing to, the foot washing points to, is the greater work that was yet to come. Points to a greater act of love and service and sacrifice. Jesus could stoop low because Jesus in just a few hours was going to be lifted up. And he knew that in that lifting up, that hour that his, of his suffering and his impending death, that that was the glory of God revealed. So for Jesus, knowing what was ahead, he could come down and say, you know what? Let me take care of you. Let me stoop as low as I could possibly get in your eyes and in the eyes of those around me, the ones whom I love, and let me show you what sacrifice looks like. Let me show you what love is made of. 
Back in my seminary days, we would call this an argument from the lesser to the greater. That the lesser act of foot washing points us to the greater act of the cross. I'm a very big believer in understanding the scriptures and grasping the scriptures in a language that's easy for us to understand. It's as if Jesus says to Simon Peter, okay, Simon Peter, I hear you. But listen, you need a cleansing only I can supply. Me cleaning your feet is just a shadow of something far bigger and far better. And just wait, it's coming. doesn't make sense now, but in time, it'll make full sense. And understand this, that if you're not cleansed, you have no part with me. Jesus here is using covenant language. There's covenantal language here. He's making a promise. Guys, and it's not just any covenant. It's not just this random covenant. It's, it's, it's a, a new covenant. A new covenant that would be purchased by the blood of Christ and expressed in the indwelling and outworking of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. We see it played out in Acts chapter 2, the descending of the Spirit after the ascending of Jesus. And guys, listen. Peter preaches the sermon of his life in Acts chapter 2. He should have taken the championship and walked away. Jesus here is covenanting. He's pointing to what was to come. I love Simon Peter's response here. It's interesting. He looks at Jesus and he says, well, okay then. Well, I mean, don't just wash my feet, dude. Like, wash all of me. My head, my hands, my arms, my legs. Like, just let's, let's just take care of this once and for all. And Jesus' response is patient, but I want us to grasp this word. Jesus' response here is beautiful. There's a beauty to Jesus' statement and response to Simon Peter. He says, my cleansing is enough. That the cleansing work that I've done is sufficient. There's sufficiency in the person and work of Christ. And he's pointing Peter to that sufficiency to say, listen, there's nothing more that you need. There's nothing to add. There's nothing that can be taken away. Listen, Hebrews would tell us this, that Jesus is an acceptable high priest. That he satisfies the requirements to enact a covenant with his people. I brought tissues. You'll thank me. <laughs> Jesus' response to Peter is a proclamation of the good news. And we might be tempted to say, well, Peter's going to get it. He gets it, right? It sticks. But at the end of John 13, Jesus looks straight into Peter's eyes and says, you're going to betray me three times even before the, the rooster crows. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Which I find to be a fascinating rhetorical question because they did not. <laughs> he literally had just said, you don't understand this, but you will. <laughs> verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right. For so I am. In verse 14, if I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I I love the scene shift here because there's sort of that verse 12 where Jesus sets the stuff aside and takes on the process of sitting back down. Like there's, there's like radio silence there, isn't there? Jesus has gone person to person, including Judas, to wash their feet. And now there's this, what's going to happen next, right? Maybe those 30 seconds felt like five minutes. And the disciples are just watching. And Jesus is just going about his business. And he sits down, he reclines at the table again. And he says to them, you don't, do you know what I've done for you? And they didn't. And the, the section 13 through 17 is as if Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because I am those things. Here's what I want you to take away from this. You see the ways that I've loved you. You see the ways that I've served you by washing your feet. Look around. I want you to do that for one another. A servant is not greater than the master. Neither is the one who is sent greater than the one who does the sending. Now there's a sort of a double meaning here in the, the sending and the, what, what Jesus is ultimately doing is he's saying, listen, me, the father has sent me. We are one. I'm doing the father's will. That's actually a, a, a sort of statement relating to verses one through four. Having done the father's will. But it's also a foreshadowing of the sending that Jesus was going to commission the disciples with, right? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? Jesus here is pointing to an already, not yet work. Listen, the the genius, I I realize Jesus is God, I, I get that, okay? But the genius of what Jesus does in his teaching is unreal, the layers, the, the fullness of single sentences and simple statements that we look at and we're like, well, that, that's pretty straightforward. And then you, you look at it again, and you're like, well, I missed that. He says, the servant is not greater than the master, neither is the one who is sent greater than the one who does the sending. He says, so then follow my example, do what I've done and you will see how blessed you truly are. We have this instruction. And Jesus, to this point in these verses, has demonstrated radical love towards his disciples. But this is sort of a, 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 a small scale, right, version or, or synopsis of a life well lived, a, a fuller life. When we zoom into the foot washing, it shocks us. It might take us by surprise, but when we zoom out, and we look at the, the entirety of Christ's life and ministry. Well, frankly, this was par for the course. This was who he was. And so it makes perfect sense that, well, this, this guy would do this thing. Here's the majesty of Christ's love. Jesus just doesn't demonstrate love towards the people closest to him. Not all of the disciples are his His name hasn't been mentioned yet. It will be in the closing section of John 13, but Judas was in that room, wasn't he? Judas was sitting there. Judas came in with his nasty, crusty, gnarly feet, hungry, sat down, 
He was invited at the table. His feet were washed. He was given bread. And then, after all of these demonstrations and expressions of love and friendship, which he rejected, Judas runs off into the night to kick off a whole other narrative. I'll be honest, I don't have an answer for why. The best thing that I can come up with, the best thing that I can come up with, is that when Jesus says, Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. He means it. And he doesn't just mean it in word. He shows it in action. Judas, in a very real sense, is not a friend of Christ. In fact, in John chapter 12, I think it's verse 5 or 6, we get insight into the condition of Judas's heart where John gives us this little detail and he says, listen, Judas was stealing money out of the money box. He didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about anybody. He cared about himself. So then why would Jesus invite him in? Why would Jesus extend himself to someone he knew was going to flat out reject him and, and betray him? mentioned 1 John chapter 4 verses 4, 7 through 20. I'll actually read it at the end of the sermon. We'll close with that. One of the, that'll be one of the texts we close with before we pray. But if I had to summarize those 13 or 14 verses, it would be this. The beautiful truth about God is that he is love. And because he is love, he is a deep abiding love. He is love and he has love and he shows love then to you and to me. He is love. He has love. He shows love that you and I can then receive, take hold of. In fact, in John chapter 15, a few short chapters later, Jesus is going to exhort the disciples to abide in his love to very literally, in the the most literal sense of the idea, pitch your tent here. Plant your flag right in the love that is offered in Christ. And he says in doing that, that you'll bear what? Much fruit. So then when we talk about what it looks like for us to love others, we're not saying that this is something I do because like I really want to and I'm capable of doing it, like I'm really cool and you guys, we just, I just need to love you well. Listen, we're saying ultimately that my love extended to others is the result of abiding in the love that Christ has for me. To pitch my tent and to invite others there. What do we do with a passage like this? What are the implications of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and exhorting them, instructing them, commanding them, and telling them whatever verb you want to use? What, how do we make sense of it? Listen, I have three sort of implications. Personal, pastoral, congregational. Personal. Listen, I've been a Christian for over 20 years. I came to faith as a a teenager. 
I've been a pastor for more than 10. And I got to tell you that even now, the most difficult truth for me to hold on to is the fact that God loves me. Anybody else? This is not something we, we grapple with. We want it to be easy. We want faith to go from point A to point B to like, I trust Christ and I'm going to be with him. But the journey is not this. The journey is a whole lot of not that. Right? <laughs> it's more a, a scatter plot than a straight line. Listen, mathematics doesn't work here. The fastest way to get from point A to point B is a straight line, not in faith. Sometimes that journey is twisted and tangled and it's just all over the place. I've been a believer a long time. I love the Lord. And I'm thankful for the way he's not only saved me, but changed me, transformed me. But man, I got to tell you, there are moments in my own walk, my own relationship with him where I worry guilt and shame and fear and those things, they cripple, right? They, they come down on our shoulders and they, they settle there. Heavy, heavy weights. This passage reminds me of the hope I have in Christ. That interaction with Peter is life to me because Peter here is being honest and he says, look, dude, you're not doing this. And Jesus says, please, let me take care of you. And in those moments where I say, look, you, there's no way you could love me, I hear this, this small voice in my head and my heart that says, please, I've taken care of it. There's something beautiful there for us. It reminds me that his sacrifice on my behalf is sufficient. I don't need to try to add to his work. I don't need to worry about whether his work is enough. I don't need to try to dress myself up to say, here I am. Look at, look at shiny will. Listen, doesn't match up. Sometimes this wrestling manifests as pride, right? It's it, here I am, right? I, I throw my shoulders back. I puff my chest out. I have gifts. I have accomplishments. This is me, right? It's not enough. Sometimes it manifests as false humility. This woe is me. There's no way he could cover my sin. There's no way he could call me his own. There's no way he could work in and through me. There's no way he's willing to work with me in the moments of despair and the moments of agony and struggle. Listen, both put the focus on what I call the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. It's just what it is. It's, it's about me. When I know full well in my soul, the emphasis is on him. And to abide in him is to trust him over and over and over and over and over again, knowing that his grace is sufficient. The passage also reminds me of the beauty of the triune God, right? There's an awe and a wonder that rises in my heart and compels me to worship, draws this random sometimes worship out of me. Now listen, I don't sing, and y'all are better for that, okay? <laughs> when I got mic'd up, I said, now... I'm on mute, right? Because <laughs> you guys don't need that kind of thing in your ears. But this passage reminds me, if his grace is sufficient and his work is sufficient and his person is sufficient, then I can worship him in confidence, can I? I can come to him and despite all my stuff and worship him in spirit and in truth. 
Listen, I'm learning over these last few years to sit with the wonder and the mystery of all of this. That God is so far above and beyond my sort of finite, limited conceptions of him. When I was a younger believer, and especially when I first started pastoral ministry, I sort of approached the Bible like a puzzle. 32,000 verses spread over 1,100 plus chapters, thousands of years of history, two testaments, 66 books, all this stuff. Like these are just pieces on a, on a floor, right? Puzzle pieces on a floor. And if I just put the right pieces together, then I will know. Not only will I know, but I can relate. Like, cause then like by putting all the pieces together, I can, well, now I can trust. Guys, if I could exhort you as best I can pastorally, listen, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. The more that I learn and the more that I understand, the more questions I have. At first it was disorienting, but the seasons of life, they, they come and go. I, we're more content to walk in faith and not feel this crisis level need to know all the things. And the narrative here in front of us, John 13, is, is beautiful. It's multi-layered. There's a lot going on. And I have a ton of questions that I hope I can ask and have answered at one point. Now, I mentioned Judas, right? My biggest question is this. You knew this guy was going to betray you. Like within minutes. You knew that every extension of friendship that you were going to offer to him in those moments, right? The invitation to dinner is an extension of love and friendship. The seating at the table is an extension of love and friendship. The washing of his feet is an extension of love and friendship. The giving of the morsel, even though we read it as well, that identified Judas as the betrayer. The disciples were shocked. You know why? Because they had all gotten morsels from Jesus. Why? Because it's a sign of friendship and love. They didn't know. You knew, you knew this guy was going to hurt you. Why would you invite him in? Here's the best answer I have. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why Jesus does what he does here. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I sort of have this Simon Peter like, dude, let me get a sword. Like it raises up this, this thing, right? But Jesus says, let me show you what love for others looks like. There's something there, something beautiful there for all of us. If I could exhort you in this. I know there are times when we read the scriptures, maybe repeatedly, consistently read the scriptures and we don't understand. Anybody ever have that problem? Can I tell you that it's okay? It's okay. That we walk in faith, trusting the Spirit to lead and guide. Listen, there are things that I read today that I don't grasp for 10 years. Happened to me last week. Things that I know I've seen a thousand times that just don't, they just don't click in my brain. There's no light on at home in that sense, right? And in due, in due time, in due season, the Lord just, it's there. It's okay if reading the scriptures are difficult. It's okay if you don't grasp everything that you read. Listen, it's okay that you have more questions than answers. 
There are times when we read the scripture, sometimes repeatedly, consistently, and those questions, they raise up in us very quickly. Listen, the Lord is big enough to handle those questions. He's big enough to handle the concerns that you have. Have you ever read the Psalms? David's got a lot of questions. David's got like a lot of hard stuff that he needs dealt with. It's okay to come to him. I, something I've said on repeat for years now, and I've had to wrestle with this over, over, over time. The Lord is both infinitely powerful. He created all the things, but he's also deeply personal. The one who formed us, in whose image we're created, he also knows the hairs on our head. He knows the condition of our heart. He knows questions we have. At a leadership level, obviously I'm a pastoral candidate, so I feel like it's appropriate to talk at this level. I've had a chance to meet so many of you in different meetings and different times, and over the last four months we've had a, a chance to get to know some folks and in that time, I've had a chance to think through what a philosophy of pastoral ministry would look like at Mosaic. What it would look like to walk among you and to walk beside you. And remember I said I had a, a tagline, a, a catchphrase, right? I bet y'all were waiting for that. Like, dude, any day now. It would be this. My genuine heart in pastoral ministry is to lead in love and serve in humility. Because I think that's what you see in this text. You see Jesus leading in love and serving in humility. I grew up in church life and was trained in pastoral ministry with this concept of servant leadership. You guys have probably heard it. Church leaders, whether they're pastors, elders, deacons, volunteers, whatever ministry, whatever it is, we are called to be servant leaders. But the more I study John 13 and the more I meditate on our servant leader model of, of ministry, the more I'm convinced we need to reverse the order. Instead of servant leader, let's try lead servant. Instead of servant leader, let's try Lead servant. Church leaders, we follow the example of Jesus by leading in love and serving in humility. We follow the example of Jesus by leading in humility and serving in love. Here's the thing How many of you have been hurt in church before? If we're not careful, if Will Soto is not careful, It can become real easy to become so intoxicated with being a leader that we put the servant part to the side. Something I believe to my core is that pastors and elders and church leaders, we are under shepherds entrusted by the good shepherd to serve, love, and care for God. We are under shepherds, entrusted by the good shepherd to serve, love, and care. This is a stewardship, a trust. 
any authority that I have, any influence I have is borrowed authority. The moment I step away from him is the moment that, well, everything goes with it. Is there leadership in this? Of course. Of course there is. But to steward it well, to steward our leadership is to be first in line to love and care. To be on the front lines, in the trenches with God's people. You know where if I could, that wouldn't drive you nuts, you know where I would prefer to speak and preach? Here. You know why? Because y'all are family. And even though the Lord might have might entrust me, might have gifted me in certain ways, listen, I'm a brother in Christ. We walk together in faith. Listen, when church leaders overemphasize leadership and underemphasize or flat out don't prioritize humility, it puts everyone at risk. Everyone. As lead servants, we have a beautiful opportunity to embody the humility and love of Christ to those around us, to walk in the spirit and offer hope and life to the broken and to the hurting, to bind the wounds of the broken and care for those in need, to rejoice and share joy with one another. The scriptures call us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? You know what being a lead servant means? Man, I want to do that with you. And just as important, I want you to do that with me. To let you into my life, into my family, into my home, and vice versa. Like, I want to raid your, your cabinets, okay? Actually, I want my kids to raid your cabinets because they're expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what a lead servant is called to do. To tend to, to shepherd the flock. Not to lord over them, not to take advantage of them, not to hurt them, but to lead and to guide and to care for and to protect and to love and to shepherd and to steward and to, we can fill in the blanks. Listen, as a lead servant, my priority is not to build a platform or expand my influence or establish a name for Will Soto, this and that and the other thing. My priority is to seek first to point others to Christ, to establish his name as most important. If I could say it this way, listen. Sacrificing others on the altar of self isn't the sacrificial love Jesus has in mind. At a congregational level, for all of us, regardless of title or position or influence or gifting or age. This passage actually reminds us that each of us are created in God's image. Now, I don't see that in the text. What is going on there? What does that mean? That's a good question. Because <laughs> it's a question I had to ask myself as I was writing my notes. Listen, Mosaic is a fitting name for this church, sure, but really any church, right? We're, we're a hodgepodge of people. How many of you are Jets fans? <laughs> 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 I 
Guys, we're going to work on this, okay? <laughs> but it, it sort of proves my point, right? Me being a Jets fan means that most of y'all, all of y'all are not. My daughter, I feel like she was obligated to do that. We come from different walks of life, don't we? We grew up in New York City very differently than, than even my kids, right? I have different giftings. I, I'm a loud mouth. The Lord, each member, each, each uh, believer is a member of the body, right? The Lord has seen fit to be a mouthpiece, okay? A loud guy who just talks, okay? But me being that and being gifted in those ways is no better or worse than the person who sits quietly in the back praying faithfully. Listen, mosaic works and it describes the work of Christ in unifying this, not in, in, in a common like, well, we have the same hobbies and the same ideas, but a common savior, right? Ephesians 4, one faith, one hope, one love, one baptism, one Lord who is in all and through all and over all, right? He's the head. He's the vine. He draws us together, which means this, that because we have different backgrounds, we have different lives, we have different gifts, we have different opinions and ideas. Listen, the image of God is critical for us to grasp if we're going to flourish as God's people. To know that the person that I'm talking to, who is very different than me, is still created in the image of God. What, what does it mean? Very quickly, the image of God is a really big idea. There's been like books like that thick written on it, okay? Some are helpful, some are really confusing, okay? But they're out there. Listen, minimally, okay? It means this, that being created in God's image means that every person has or is, has inherent and equal dignity, inherent and equal value, inherent and equal worth, is fearfully and wonderfully made and is a reflection of God's glory, exclamation point. Listen, if I can say it this way, every time you lock eyes with another person, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter where they come from, listen, you are looking at someone created in God's image. It doesn't matter whether they're friend or neighbor or enemy. We see this in the foot washing, don't we? And Jesus looks at his disciples, who, by the way, as far as we know, all but John was the, he was the only one that stayed put, wasn't he? He's the only guy. Like, Jesus actually has a conversation with him in the final moments of his life. The others, gone. You know what Jesus did? He washed the feet of disciples who were going to run from him. Like, he made it easier for them to go. but he knew them and he knew who they were and he knew that in short order he would draw them back and he knew that in drawing them back he would send them out. To love others, to do as he's done is to see a person as God sees them to see them as worthy of honor and respect and dignity. And if I could say it this way, as worth the price of redemption. Even there, Jesus is our example, isn't he? You ever think about the miracles that Christ has 
done that we read throughout the Gospels, especially the personal miracles, right? Jesus spits on the ground and like puts mud on the guy's eye and like things happen, right? Like Jesus talks to a, a guy and says, get up and take up your mat and walk and all, all these, these wild things, Jesus forgiving and healing and just crazy stuff. For the longest time I preached those miracles as Jesus is the ultimate authority over fill in the blank. I'm thankful for the Lord's work and maturity and time and all of these things, right? Because his personal miracles didn't just prove him to be the ultimate authority. They do, but they also served to restore the dignity and value of the image bearer. Those who were considered unclean have now been made clean. Those who were considered outside the community are now brought in. Those who are far are drawn close. Those who are lost are now found. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sin are now seated, made alive together in Christ. This is the beautiful work. When we talk about the person and work, we're not limiting it to the death, burial, and resurrection. We are looking at the fullness of Christ's life and ministry. And not just the actions, but the heart that undergirded the actions. The heart that's there. And we say that when Jesus says, now you go do as I've done for you, as I've loved you, go love one another, right? Paul says it this way, we are ministers of reconciliation with a ministry of reconciliation. You know what reconciliation is? It's to bring together two things, at least two things that have been broken or separated. Listen, if I could say this boldly and pastorally and in love. There are too many folks out here waging culture war in the name of Jesus and not enough folks out here washing feet. Too many folks out here waging culture war. Letting everybody know what we're against and who we're not for and these kinds of things. And Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. You see me serving Humbly and in love, now you go do the same. He expresses it differently in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. The world will know you're my what? Disciples by what? Your love for one another. It is fundamentally different. The kingdom of God, the, the ethic of God's kingdom is fundamentally different than the world around us, the ethic of the world around us. And dare I even say the ethic of some who profess the name of Christ. Our ministry in the world is to proclaim the beautiful good news that in Christ salvation is available. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. To love others to serve them as he has loved and served us is not only to see them as God sees them, but to minister specifically, intentionally, and with their best interest in mind. I want to read Philippians chapter 2, and we'll close in prayer. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then I actually want to read 1 John 4, because I think it's appropriate. Philippians 2, 1 through 10, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, 
Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and ten in one purpose. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Comma. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And we'll close with this portion, 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your goodness towards us. Father, we confess that on our best day, on our brightest, shiniest day, that we don't measure up, that we fall far short, And yet, Father, we know and we likewise confess that because of your love demonstrated and proven over and again in Christ, we are now seated with him. The old is gone, the new has come. We are crucified in Christ. There is no longer I, but you who lives. So, Father, we pray that you would help us, all of us, Father, help us to to rest, to abide in your love, to take hold of it, to pitch our tent, to grasp onto it. Father, remind us that even the, the thinnest, most frayed thread of faith, strand of faith is firmly attached to the garment of Christ. Father, we pray that you would use us. By your spirit, use us to love one another. Use us to love our neighbor well. Father, that the world might see us and know that we belong to you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we can ask the prayer team to come on up.